there is a natural life and death cycle to every day, every moment, Mm. every season. We are shedding thousands of cells every day. Parts of us are dying every day. Leaves falling from the trees, insects, animals dying in our midst. Death is all around us all the time. Mm -hmm. And so is renewal. So is rebirth. Welcome to Taboo Tuesday on the Emotionally Fit Podcast. I'm Dr. Emily Anhalt, and I've always loved talking about taboo subjects. Sex, money, drugs, death. Because being a therapist has taught me that the feelings we're most hesitant to talk about are also the most normal. So join me as we flex our feels by diving into things you might not say out loud, but you're definitely not the only one thinking. Quick disclaimer that nothing in this podcast should be taken as professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Because while I am a therapist, I'm not your therapist, and I'm not my guest therapist. So this is intended only to spark interesting conversation. Thanks for tuning in. Hey there, Fit fans. I am so excited to be here today for Taboo Tuesday with Shoshana Berger, who is the global editorial director at IDEO, where she tells the story of how design can help us create the change we want to see in the world. She has worked on all kinds of amazing topics, everything from end of life to modern Judaism to school lunch. And she is the co-author with Dr. B.J. Miller of A Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death. She's written for the New York Times, Time, Fast Company, Wired, and Quartz, and she's just an absolute delight to speak with. Shoshana, thank you so much for being here with me today. I'm so glad to be here with you. It is such a true pleasure. And, you know, of all of our topics, the topic of death is interestingly one of the harder ones to find people who really want to dive into it. You know, it seems like if I want someone to talk about sex, I can find it. If I want someone to talk about money, I can find it. But when it comes to death, I think as a whole, we are not so great at confronting it head on. I really appreciate you being here. I would love it if you start with, you know, just tell me a little bit about you and how you got to this point in your very alive life up till now. We'll go from there. Well, my whole career has been in publishing and I started out as a journalist. I was a tech and music journalist in my early 20s. And I started writing on a year of what I call a room springer. You know, you, you go off and sow your oats. When I was just out of college, I went to Prague for a year and was slumming and writing and teaching English. And, you know, pints were 25 cents. And it was like the glory days of expatriate Europe. And I, through my 20s, kind of honed my writing craft and was writing for the New York Times and Wired and Salon and all those places and ended up starting my own magazine. And the magazine was called Ready Made. It was a do-it-yourself design magazine, which was inspired by Bay Area garage resourcefulness and entrepreneurialism and the whole earth access movement where, you know, in the seventies, which is, you know, I'm going to date myself here, but it was very much about taking the reins and owning the means of production and being self-directed and having agency in life. And I actually think it's not unrelated to where I ended up with this book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, because if you think of death as an experience, like every other experience we have in life, giving birth, 
falling in love, getting married, maybe getting divorced, raising our children, all of these huge life cycle events, death is one of them. And it is a transformational event. It was kind of stunning to me how unprepared I was for it when people close to me were dying and specifically when my father died. So the book we wrote was really kind of a ready-made approach to death, an instructional guide to this experience. Wow. Had anything like that been written or created before? Well, you know, we have what to expect when you're expecting for the other side. Right. But no, we didn't have a what to expect when you're expiring, if you will, <laughs> which is what someone suggested we, we title the book. So no, there really wasn't a stepwise approach to thinking about how you prepare yourself in terms of your own fear and dread, in terms of having conversations with your family, you know, what do they want for the rest of their lives? How do they want their end of life experience to look? So we wanted to fill that gap. And I ended up teaming up with one of the nation's great hospice and palliative care physicians, BJ Miller, who was actually a client at uh, the global design firm where I work, IDEO. And I met him on a project to think about rebranding hospice. Hospice is this incredible suite of free care we have through, it's a Medicare benefit. And yet there's so much baggage and so much stigma attached to it. People think it's actually a place you go to die and that it's a death sentence and that there are private institutions that are going to take advantage of you as a patient. I think I have to check my bias right here. I think if I were to describe what a hospice is, I probably would have said it's a place that you go to pass away comfortably. Will you maybe reteach me? Like, What would you describe it as in a different way? Oh, Emily, thank you for that prompt, because it's really good to investigate our biases around healthcare. And that one's a really strong one. And I think I might have said the same before I had the experience of engaging with hospice and learning from BJ. First of all, let's talk quickly about palliative care. You do not have to be dying to take advantage of palliative care. It's about making you more comfortable. And so you can be far from death. The one criteria you have to have to engage with palliative care is that you are suffering. Hmm. And then hospice is a subset of palliative care where you really, it has to be determined by a physician that you're dying within the next six months. Mm. That can be fairly fast and loose, right? Because uh, prediction around prognosis is notoriously faulty. But the idea is, is that you are terminal and that once you've gone through palliative care, that hospice is where you decide that you are no longer going to pursue treatment. Mm, and that ultimately can last as long as it does. It can. And a lot of people graduate out of hospice hmm. and it turns out they're not really dying and they feel a lot better. Wow. And sometimes that's about saying no to treatments. Yeah. and Or maybe getting the care and support you needed all along. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. That's powerful. Well, you know, one thing I learned when looking around at my classmates in grad school about what everyone was doing their dissertation on is that if you're going to write thoroughly about something, you probably have some powerful personal connection to it. So I'd love to, to the extent that you're comfortable, hear about what led you to this topic, what made you want to dive headfirst into it and share the wisdom you gained 
with the world. Sure. So yes, it's right what you know. And what I knew was that my dad has suffered with dementia. He was a professor at Berkeley for 50 years of Mm. bioengineering. He was basically a walking brain. Mm -hmm. And we ended up in a situation where his colleagues emailed us and said, your father is a danger to himself and really needs to stay at home. It turns out he had been spotted at the elevator, inside the elevator with the doors open and closing, not knowing what button to push Mm. or lost in the parking lot. And so he came home and he ended up living for another five years, but he faded pretty precipitously. So it was shocking. It was shocking for my sister and I to see this man, this lion, this intellect just lose his identity, you know, and then we had to take his keys away and slowly people are stripped of their independence and their freedom and their sense of self. And in the midst of that, I felt so confused, so completely unprepared for how to give him the best care that we could, have conversations with his doctors, navigate the healthcare system, navigate insurance, navigate long-term care. It was like the most difficult thing I think our family has ever taken on. And in the midst of that chaos, my instinct is always like, man, How is it possible that someone with a graduate degree can be so clueless about something so elemental in life? Hmm. It's like you're book smart and completely life clueless. And I thought to myself, if I'm having this much trouble, there's probably a lot of other people who are having trouble with this experience. And how could I take what I know about the gaps in learning and preparedness and try to help other people through this? amazing. I'm curious. I think sometimes when something painful has happened to us and we turn it into an opportunity to learn and to teach, we end up talking about it so much that I wonder in this instance, is your relationship to it different? Is it still really painful to think about that time with your dad? Have you told the story so many times that there's distance there? You know, it comes in waves. And I think that's what you start to know intimately about grief is that there are times when you can talk about it with a totally straight face. And it's like you were talking about what you're going to eat for dinner. And there are times when it it just, there's this surge and you don't even know where the wave is coming from. I I was at a talk recently and I read a letter that I wrote to my daughter in the book, something that I want her to discover if you know I walk out of this building and I get hit by a bus. And it was basically a pep talk, like, you've got this. You don't need me. You are a fully formed human being. She's 13 years old. And it was an incredible experience just writing this letter. It was such a relief to have down on paper some just a moment of transition and hand off to her, you know, mm. like, I love you so much. I did everything I could, and you've got this. And um, reading that letter in public just completely broke me. I, and I just started sobbing on stage. And I kept apologizing. And everyone, you know, was kind of nodding at me reassuringly, like, don't apologize. This is what it is. This is real. 
But I couldn't help but feel some shame and some embarrassment about getting so overwrought in this moment because, again, it, it's like I've, I'm a veteran. I'm a journey woman. Like I wrote this book. But the fact is, is that we never know when something's going to break us. And thank God that I felt safe enough in that room to, to do that because I, I, I do think when you open up a conversation about this stuff, people are desperate to talk about it. Mm. The floodgates just open and everyone has a story. Feels so poignant and meta, actually, because I get the sense that the whole message is every single one of us is going to die. It's the most inevitable thing. And yet, none of us is prepared, even the person who is the expert. Like, there just ultimately is no getting out of the fact that it's going to happen, that it's difficult and painful and scary. You know, and we so badly want that not to be true. But I, I almost think there's something really beautiful about, like, hey, even I am not immune, even the one who has devoted so much of my time and energy to this thing. Totally, totally. There's this great Woody Allen quote that we have in the book. I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That Um, feels really, that resonates with me. (laughs) And it's true what you say. I mean, so many of life experiences, we we just can't be prepared for. Parenting is one of those two and childbirth. Mm. Like there's no, there's no way that someone can transmit what that's going to feel like in a way that you can really absorb it. You just got to do it, mm. you know? And of course, there are entire parts of our population that devote their lives to preparing for this one climactic event. I mean, Tibetan Buddhists meditate on death five times a day in a way of practicing. And I remember watching the George Harrison documentary, The Beatle, and he he took up meditation specifically to prepare himself for death. And do you think he was any more prepared for death? I mean, I guess that's my big question is, do does what does this change? What's the benefit of devoting more of our energy and focus and time to really looking at this thing that we all turn away from? Well, the answer is I don't know. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> but I will say that there seems to be a peace that comes at the very end, that even if people are fighting it tooth and nail and going down swinging and have a lot of dread, there seems to be some kind of, I don't know if it's a biological response, if it's some kind of transcendental intervention, but there seems to be a kind of peace that comes in the final days and moments. And when you think about it, we die every night that we close our eyes and we trust that that's okay. We're going to close our eyes and we're going to kind of go into oblivion. And there's something beautiful about learning from that too, that, you know, we've been practicing this our whole life. Hmm. I love that. I even think about like being in the womb and you don't know what's out there. You don't know what's going to happen to you. And no baby could probably predict this insane world they're born into. So who the hell knows what what happens when we leave this particular world? Exactly, exactly. From one dark, warm space to another. (laughs) Wow. So how did things shift for you as you started researching and writing this book? What what are things that you learned or what were unexpected feelings or anything you can share? What a process. So many things. So first of all, I learned a lot about the mechanics of death, Mm. like what happens to the body as it's shutting down. Have you read Stiff? Yeah, that was eye opening. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. (laughs) And 
also the industry around death. So the funeral industry, how people have to make a lot of choices at a moment when they are really thick in grief. Mm. And so again, that's stuff that you can really decide in advance. Tell your people, like, I know I want to be cremated and this is where I want you to dispose of my ashes or I would like to be buried in this place and I've actually put some money away for you to do that. Or, you know, I I found this beautiful conservation forest and here's the tree where I want to be composted. Like there are lots of options out there now. There are all kinds of interesting options for green burial, for shooting your ashes out into space. I mean, whatever is your flavor of this, there's the mechanics and industry of death are really, really fascinating. I also, on a very personal and human level, learned a lot about how many secrets people keep, huh. which is uh, some of the interviews turned over rocks that we were not expecting, like a woman who had an, a police officer knock on her door and report that her husband was dead. That's the first shock. Then to hear that how he died was by self-asphyxiating, second shock. Mm-hmm. And the self-asphyxiating happened in a gay bathhouse. First shock, my husband's dead. Second shock, he did it to himself. Third shock, he was gay. So imagine what that woman's grief looked like. Mm. Not only is she mourning just losing her partner, but suddenly their whole life together feels like kind of a lie. Mm. And what they call that is complicated grief. Because it's not what, they, what they'd say is a clean grief where it's like, okay, you're mourning and that lasts for a certain period of time, but then it fades. With complicated grief, there's so much other stuff that you're dealing with, yeah. so much confusion around how could he have not confessed this to me and you know, this whole time I thought we had one kind of relationship and now I see things completely differently. That can attenuate grief so that it it doesn't let you go, so that you are in its grip for much longer. It's it's a traumatic thing. It takes a lot more therapy and a lot more figuring out how to let go of this person. Because you, of course, can't blame them, can't go to them and have a conversation with them. Mm. You can't settle the score. I mean... Yeah, I see that with patients a lot, that patients who have lost parents that mostly met their needs have a really different kind of grief than patients who have lost parents who failed them in some way because with the parent who has failed you when they die also dies any hope for the wanted parent to emerge. So you're mourning the one you had and you're mourning the one that some part of you always hoped might appear. Mm -hmm. Yes. There's this amazing moment that we had with Ira Bayak, who's another palliative care physician. He wrote the book, The Four Things That Matter Most. And those are the four things that you want to make sure you say to someone before you die. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. And I love you. Mm. And it turns out just those four things can make a world of difference in how people are able to let you go and how you are able to let go. And we asked, I promise this is coming back around to what we were talking about. We asked Ira, hey, it's been 10 years since you wrote that book. Is there a fifth thing? Like in your research, have you discovered a fifth thing? And he said, actually, yes. 
He said, there are people in my practice who I talk to, 65-year-old men who say, I still wish that I had heard from my father. I'm so proud of you. Mm, That's the most human thing. So heartbreaking, right? Those simple things that kids spend their entire lives hoping to hear from their parents. So just to your point about the complication of not having those reconciliations, those resolutions. And you know, the fact is, is that not everyone is going to. Like sometimes resolution is impossible. Sometimes there's too much that's broken and there's too much hurt. I also think about like people often feel a lot of pressure when they give a gift because they think the gift is supposed to sum up the entire relationship. I also think something like that happens with death. It's like the last thing you said to me has to somehow represent our entire relationship or whatever happens in your death has to be everything. That's so much pressure. Right. Totally. And like, can we not put more pressure on the dying? And also, again, the way it was with my dad was, you know, he had not been conscious for two days. Before that, he had not been able to communicate with us for a good couple of years. Mm. So he was gone. Wow. And we had done a lot of pre-grieving, my sister and I, where we felt like we had had good sit on the edge of the bed together, holding hands, just sobbing our eyes out about our dad who was gone. And he was still alive. Mm. He was still walking the earth, but we had had to let him go because the father we knew was gone. You know, people go through these profound chronic illnesses and they are not the person that you knew and you've already grieved losing them. So the moment of death can actually feel much more like a relief. And there's a lot of shame around that Mm. out there, you know, or people, you know, everyone's going to expect you to like be dressed in black and not be able to function for a while. And we were certainly sad when my father finally died, but we're also a little bit relieved, Mm. you know, it was the end of his suffering. It was the end of us having to care for this person who was no longer there. I'm so glad you say that. I think it's extremely true in the situation you experienced, which is it sounds like you lost your dad in phases. But then I even think, I think it's pretty normal and healthy that we might have relief even just because we have mixed feelings about the people in our lives. And it just doesn't feel like there's a lot of room for both feelings. Like, can't we be devastated and relieved at the same time? They're not mutually exclusive. I mean, you're a therapist, so you know this, but I think that's such a valuable, valuable life lesson, right? When are we ever not ambivalent about anything? Mm, Like, Never. (laughs) It's always like kind of in process of figuring Mm. it out. So having gone through this with your father and then you wrote this book, I can only imagine how many stories that you heard and, you know, firsthand experiences you got to witness. What changed in terms of the way you think about your own death? So that was surprising because I really thought this was going to cure my <laughs> cure mm, my fear. That'd be nice. Uh, yeah, right? You get closer to something and it's like that exposure therapy, uh-huh. right? You know, afraid of flying? Go take a bunch of flights and work through it. And I think to some extent, it did round off the corners of my fear because I feel much more prepared for the whole experience. The fear part is tricky because you have to kind of dig into what you're really afraid of. Hmm. Like, are you afraid of oblivion? Are you afraid of just like going into the darkness and what's there? Are you afraid in a much more kind of religious way of like the fiery ovens of hell. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are really afraid of judgment and what that's going to look like. Are you afraid of missing out? 
mm. you know, FOMO, like I'm not going to see my my daughter get married, have her first baby, whatever it is. I'll add mine, which is none of those things scare me as much as suffering. I'm when so really life is more about suffering yes. than death is. Yes, I think a lot of people share that fear. It turns out on that one, you're probably okay. Hmm. It's not that you're not going to suffer at all. Of course, dying involves suffering. But BJ was a huge comfort to me in knowing that we are really, really good at pain care now. Hmm. So um, we can we can really make people very comfortable towards the end of their life. It's not going to alleviate all suffering, of course. And there is the suffering of just dread, mm-hmm. of not knowing what comes next. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the pain part of the suffering, we've, we've, we've really covered that off in many ways. Uh, so that's comforting to know. But yeah, so once you unpack like where your fear really lies, you know, then it's helpful like, okay, so for me, it's it's the oblivion part. And it's also the fear of missing out. And so that just makes you much more able to think about like, okay, knowing that, knowing that I really don't want to miss out, am I like really living it now? Huh? Am I like really showing up for every moment? From FOMO to Joby, fear of missing out to joy of being in. Nice. <laughs> Gosh, I wish we had met before we wrote this book. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Like, are you really showing up in your life? Mm. And are you looking people in the eye and putting down your phone when you're in conversation and taking people in? And it really changed the way that I say hello and goodbye to people. You know, when I say hello to people, I really look at them and see them and try to kind of absorb their energy. For I'm going to sound very California woo-woo for a minute, but when I'm saying goodbye to people, I really look them in the eye and say, I love you. I want you to acknowledge that we're saying goodbye right now because it's all practice. Mm. It's all practice for that bigger goodbye. So it sounds like emotionally what's shifted for you is a refocus on being present for the time you are alive. And then logistically, what has it changed for you in terms of the way that you plan for your own death? Have you already figured out what you want and you've told people about it? And you know, what's that look like for you? I'm kind of the most annoying person around this, around <laughs> talking about death, because I have drilled it down to a science. And I've actually written a very elaborate advanced directive about what happens if I lose my cognitive capacity, mm. like my dad did, which I'm fairly certain it's going to happen. You know, I did my 23andMe and I've got the genetic marker and, yeah, you know. So you're just aware of that and you're like, okay, knowing that, that that's more probable than the general population, what do I need my loved ones to know? And what I, what I wrote to my husband, because he's my, my healthcare proxy, my healthcare agent is, look, if I don't recognize you, and I can't do the things that I love on my own, like eat and walk. I want to have comfort care only. Mm. And what that means is, is that if I get the flu or pneumonia, please do not give me antibiotics. Please do not give me treatment. Don't send me to the hospital. Unless I, you know, if I fall and break my arm, yes, I'll, I'll take a cast. But I don't want curative help if I'm in that state. I want to kind of let whatever little bug comes along take me in a natural way. And also 
I'm pretty clear that, I mean, I haven't done this yet, but there's this great new conservation land green burial movement. There's a better place forests in the South Bay near Santa Cruz where you can walk through a forest and choose your tree Mm. and get cremated and you're composted into the root system of that tree. And there's a page in our book about how nature dies. And it turns out in, you know, say the 300-year life of an old tree, it spends the first 100 years growing, the second 100 years just sharing intelligence through its root system with the forest network that it's in and transmitting its best nutrients to the ecosystem around it, allowing the fungi to eat up any toxins. It's an incredibly intricate forest floor intelligent network. Mm. So the next hundred years are spent in that conversation. And then the last hundred years of a tree's life are actually the most productive and it's actively dying. So third of its life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is, these are not exact numbers, but if you think of it as a kind of arc, That last third of the tree's life is an active dying period where instead of hoarding its nutrients, the tree is actively shedding its most valuable nutrients into the soil around it to incubate new life. Mm. That hit me somewhere. That's so beautiful. It's a really beautiful metaphor, right? That, you know. What's the human equivalent of that? Right. Exactly. So like, what can we learn about tree-centered dying, tree-centered design? Like, could we think about the end of our lives as being a time of mentorship, generosity, giving, paring down our own lives and giving it back to the people we love and the communities that we're, that we're in? That's really powerful. So I'm curious if you have any words of wisdom for people who maybe haven't spent a lot of time thinking about death beyond whatever they might have experienced in their family life, whatever it might be. I think even people who have experienced death don't always spend a lot of time thinking about it. Where might a person start? Yeah, it's really hard when you're, you know, in your 20s to feel like this is a relevant conversation. I mean, some people are just naturally drawn to that heat. Like I've seen a lot of young people at our talks and I was like, what brought you here? And they're just, they're they're curious and they're I think a lot of those people find their way to it because they've had some kind of experience. You know, a grandparent died or an uncle or an aunt or maybe a sibling died. It turns out like one in seven of us will have someone in our immediate family die by the time we're 18. Wow, one in seven. One in seven. So that's pretty. That's a pretty staggering statistic. So people have pretty immediate experience pretty early on. What we tried to remind people of in the book is that there are moments throughout life when it's a good time to engage. So first time you step into the DMV and you're asked, do you want to be an organ donor? Great moment, great touch point for people to actually like think about, huh, what does that mean? What does organ donation do for the world? Like you save eight lives every time you donate your organs. That's a pretty direct and heroic way Mm. to give back if you think about life. Of course, having a family, you know, having a partner, like you become responsible for each other. You start thinking about what does that responsibility look like if something happens to me? But I'd say if you feel pretty immune to this, one beautiful way of getting engaged with it is just really paying attention to how the world works. So 
there is a natural life and death cycle to every day, every moment, mm. every season. We are shedding thousands of cells every day. Parts of us are dying every day. Leaves falling from the trees, insects, animals dying in our midst. Death is all around us all the time. Mm -hmm. And so is renewal. So is rebirth. And just tapping into that, I feel like, is such a powerful awakening to the cycles of life. I'm so much more aware of it now. So I have to say this conversation has just been really special. For whatever reason, perhaps my Jewish heritage, death has always kind of been on my mind. My sort of hashtag. Jews are obsessed with death. We really are. Yeah. Man, we really are. Yeah. My hashtag is don't forget about death. <laughs> but for all of the reasons that you said that when you look at the things that are scary, it opens and unlocks other beautiful things. You know, there is no birth without death. So it's really nice to talk with a fellow death-obsessed human. <laughs> the way that I end each podcast episode is I give you a list of taboo questions that kind of span the gamut of sex, drugs, death, therapy, money, all of it. Love and it. you can it. just read them over. And when you have one that you feel comfortable or, you know, comfortably uncomfortable answering, read it out loud and then share your answer. And you can pick one in the death category or just whatever strikes you. Mm. Wow, this is a good list. Okay, I got it. What is a taboo topic you love speaking about when you find like-minded people? Nice. So... I think the most underserved conversation, if a conversation could be underserved in our culture, is the one about how fucking hard it is to be married Ooh. and to be in partnership. Yes. And I, I'm going to ask for forgiveness for my husband for talking about this, though he'll probably never hear this podcast. I think the institution is set up to fail. Mm. I think there is way too much pressure on married people to get it right. And I don't think anyone really knows how to. And I think the people who say they are, you know, it's completely beyond my knowledge. Like, I, I don't know how they figured that out. And some secret part of me thinks that they're lying or deceiving themselves. I think it's the hardest thing we do. And I think that when I find people who feel equally broken in relationship and feel like they just don't want to get divorced and don't want to like throw a grenade into the <laughs> into the middle of the room but often feel like this is just untenable like i don't know how to feel good in this situation and part of that is me i know that half of that is my own baggage my own hooks my own familial stuff that I'm bringing to this relationship. And yet I don't know, I, I can't find my way out of that. Mm. And of course, therapy can help and it has helped us. But I don't think people talk nearly enough. Like in a perfect world, I feel like couples would be in a room together doing group therapy on a weekly basis. You know, 10 couples in a room, just having it out. And then like sharing strategies for how they get through it. Yeah. And I do that with my girlfriends, but you know, you kind of need to be in a place where you are in an equally broken mm. <laughs> relationship. So sometimes I end up like saying things out loud that I can't even believe I'm saying out loud to my friends. And some of them are like, oh yeah, totally. I'm in the same place. And some of them are like, oh, I'm so sorry. Hmm. And then I just feel like 
the pathetic one who couldn't figure it out. Hmm. Well, I mean, the whole institution was created at a time when we were living literally half as long. (laughs) Exactly. It's really So now we're supposed to have 50, 60, 70 year marriages? Like, really? It's totally sustainable. Yeah. I'm with you there. Yeah. I also really appreciate what you're saying that we are pretty good at convincing ourselves that we're alone in a particular thing. And sometimes just being in a room with other people navigating it makes a difference because you're like, oh, it's not so bad if if I'm not the only one kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Part of the problem with these institutions like marriage and like the nuclear family is that they're isolating. Mm. They depend on people being siloed in you know the the perfect suburban house with 2.5 kids and the Volvo and you know the the whole model is is really about isolating yourself and making this little platonic ideal of a relationship and a family work and i don't think it's set up to work i think it's set up to be under pressure at all times there's also so many examples out there of these faux perfect marriages and then so many examples out there of just marriages exploding into a million pieces and i'm like where are all the examples of people like hurting and fighting and then repairing and yes. moving on and then doing it again which God, is that's so such a good point true. that is such a good point like you know that's why i love that that showtime um it's like in in counseling or in something treatment. in treatment oh yeah oh my god that show is so satisfying it's great because you're actually in the room where all the shit is hitting the fan and you're hearing people talk about the real stuff but you know how many people actually see that show like that should just be common parlance like i think people should be talking about this and workshopping this all the time in the same way that you're in a you're in a mother's group yeah. when you have a baby because of course it's hard and of course it's isolating and nobody knows how to do it and there's no instruction manual even yeah. like the way parents will go to some private place to to make up but they fought more publicly like how powerful would it be if the next day after kids kind of witnessed their parents not doing too well, the parents came back and said, here's how we worked through that together. Like there's just not a full life cycle. I mean, to bring it all back to birth and death, it's the same thing with conflict. Like there's conflict and repair and conflict and repair. And we're just not really taught how to get through the whole cycle. No, no, we just sweep it under the rug. And, And you're reminding me that I need to do some work with my kids and explain to them why we fight. And how we repair. Because yeah. all the evidence and data show that if you if kids see you repair, then fighting no longer becomes this apocalyptic thing yes. where it's the whole sky is going to fall, right? I think about it like conflict in a relationship is like exercise to a muscle. Like exercise damages the muscle, but then if you repair it with fuel and rest, it grows back stronger. And not only can it withstand more pressure next time, but it also, you know, heals better the next time, right? That's and a good metaphor. I yeah. Like, if I we can it. repair conflict in a relationship, the relationship actually ends up stronger than it was before the conflict. But if you don't do the repair, then it damages permanently. Well, this conversation's given me life. I, I realized one more question I have to throw out there, which is a whole conversation about death. I want to know what makes you feel most alive? What makes me feel most alive is dancing. Oh my gosh. I have the same answer. Really? Yes. One time I was sitting with a patient and I kept having these visions of myself dancing. And when I took it to supervision, I realized it's because I felt this deadness with the patient and I had to bring myself to life somehow. And that's That's how I did it. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I just recently had a, we had a big party and we were dancing for probably 
four hours straight. Mm. And I was wearing high heels and usually I can't wear high heels. I didn't feel anything. I didn't care about anything. It was total freedom, total elation. That's amazing. Yeah, it's good stuff. Thank you so (laughs) much. This was so fun. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And for everyone listening, you need to check out this book. Tell what's the best way? Are you an Amazon promoter? Should people go to Barnes and Noble and actually get a copy? Yeah, well, support your independent bookstore and go buy it in the store. A Beginner's Guide to the End. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to Emotionally Fit, hosted by me, Dr. Emily Anhalt. New Taboo Tuesdays drop every other week. How did today's taboo subject land with you? Tweet your experience with the hashtag EmotionallyFit and follow me at Dr. Emily Anhalt. Please rate, review, follow, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is produced by Koa, your gym for mental health where you can take live therapist-led classes online. From group sessions to therapist matchmaking, Koa will help you build your emotional fitness routine. Head to joincoa.com, that's joincoa.com, to learn more and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at joincoa. From Studio Pod Media in San Francisco, our producer is Katie Sunku Wood. Music is by Milano. Special thanks to the entire Koa crew.